I won't embarrass Mufti uh, Abdurrahman too much by going into his bio. You all have his bio. Uh, I will simply say that he's someone I've known for several years, um, who's really, mashallah, very well accomplished in different arenas, uh, as a Mufti in his own tradition, um, but also as an academic with a doctorate from SOAS in Islamic studies, um, and somebody who, mashallah, takes a very wide angle kind of lens on certain issues um, and a just thoroughly uh, enjoyable human being. For today, we're going to listen to him for about 20, 25 minutes, um, at which point we'll open up the floor for questions, inshallah. Bismillah. Shukran. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillahi hamdan kathiran tayyiban mubarakan fih mubarakan alayh kama yuhibbu rabbuna wa yarda jalla jalaluhu wa amma nawaluh wa salatu wa salamu ala sayyidil habibil mustafa sallallahu ta'ala alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa baraka wa sallama tasliman kathiran ila yawmiddin amma ba'd qala allahu tabaraka wa ta'ala fil qur'an al-majid wal furqan al-hamid بل هو آيات بينات في صدور الذين أوتوا العلم صدق الله العظيم. so respected attendees alhamdulillah we're coming to a close on this my talk today is more about the effect of the Indian subcontinent and the devotional practices of the subcontinent pretty much throughout the world. And the reason I say this is because I say this like both as a, I, I don't know if I can actually call myself an insider. I'm definitely an outsider. I have an overseas citizenship of India. So seeing how devotional practice in India have pretty much affected uh, nearly all the countries in the West. So I think that's what my paper is going to be about. And I've actually chosen somebody very specific. Um, if I'm going to start this paper, if I start it with a question that which Indian personality, religious personality, comes to your mind as being the most influential on the devotional practices of the subcontinent? A number of personalities could come to mind. We had a discussion about Sheikh Mu'inuddin Chishti, rahimahullah, earlier. And there's a number of others that will come to mind as well. So today, the, the person I want to speak about is somebody that very few scholars from the Indian subcontinent and beyond today who have probably not in some way or the other benefited from the heritage of that person's heritage. And that's Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi. Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi known by a number of other names. Uh, his story goes back centuries. He didn't just appear in a vacuum. There, there was a lot done in the subcontinent for Sheikh Imam uh, Ahmed Sarhindi to have flourished the way he did and then to do the work that he did and then to be given the title as reviver of the second millennium. So I just want to discuss some of that uh, in this paper. So Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi is born in 971, um, died in 1034 Hijri. So that's just the end and beginning of the Islamic second millennium. Uh, just to put in perspective from a Gregorian perspective, that's 
1624. His story goes back centuries. It didn't just start, that's 400 years ago when he lived. It didn't just start then, in 971 of the Hijrah. It actually starts with the spread of Islam in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, from uh, by Muslims from Arabia, Muhammad bin Qasim in Sindh, and then in other places of uh, the rest of the subcontinent. And I would probably assume that number of you sitting here today would probably take pride in referring uh, in referring to themselves as Siddiqui, right? Any Siddiqis here? No Siddiqis. Okay, Osmani. Right, you, you've got a claim to Siddiqui, uh, you know, Sid, being Siddiqui, Faruqi, uh, Uthmani, Alawi, and then of course the, we definitely have some Sayyids here. Uh, and uh, MashaAllah Mullah Mahmoud Madni is Sayyid. So they, they, uh, obviously they all trace their ancestry to some of the greatest forebears of Islam that go beyond the Indian subcontinent. However, we, I mean, I have to add this, we can't guarantee that all such attributions can be reliably traced. For as with anything that is valuable, there's always going to be fakes that appear. Right? So, among the descendants of these Uthmanis and Siddiqis and others that came into the subcontinent, there was a family that ended up in Punjab. Now, I know we've got a few Punjabis here and I really want to highlight this point because this is really amazing. Right? I wish there were more Punjabis here so that they could really. Aftab, you're from Punjab? Yeah? And Zishan? Punjabi? MashaAllah. Right? So, uh, now, uh, now Punjab is actually divided between India and Pakistan, but the area that I speak about is actually on the Indian side, which is called Sarhind. I've had the, MashaAllah, the honor to have visited. Uh, many of these and surrounding areas had large Muslim populations before 1946, but unfortunately, uh, after the problems, you know, many of them have migrated to Pakistan and beyond. There's always a silver lining to everything. And uh, mashallah, we have a huge population of Punjabis in the UK. So, I want to speak about three events now. And then we're going to tie those three events together. The first event is that in Sarhind settled the family of the Faruqi line. So, out of these four or five famous families, uh, a Faruqi line, descendants of Umar al-Faruq, Amir al-Mu'mineen, radiallahu anhu, Umar ibn al-Khattab, radiallahu anhu, settled there. One of the scholars of this, uh, one of the scholars, um, his, his son's name was Ahmed. He was the one who eventually became Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi, but how does he do that? So, much before this time, we have to start some centuries before that, in Uzbekistan, which is not too far away, right? It's just Afghanistan, and then there's Uzbekistan, just beyond the Oxus River. In the lands of Bukhara, Samarkand, Tirmidh, Khawarizm, Shash, Tashkent, Nasaf, etc. There's a scholar from Bukhara in particular, Bahauddin Naqshband, died in 1389 Hijri. It worked very hard to establish an order, actually not 1389, it was 1389 Gregorian. It worked very hard to establish an order of spirituality to connect people to Allah Most High. This order eventually became known as the Naqshbandi order. He had many students and disciples who sp spread around and inspired many of the subsequent generations. One of the spiritual descendants further down the line was a Khaja called Khaja Muhammad Amkanagi. He, di he died in 1600 Gregorian. Khaja Muhammad Amkanagi. 
Now, in the time of this Khaja Muhammad Amkanagin, around the, just before the 1600s, there's a third individual now. He leaves Kabul. Now, Kabul is next door in, in Afghanistan today. And he's looking for spiritual purification, enlightenment, fulfillment. His name is Radiuddin Muhammad Baqi. Eventually, he becomes known as Khaja Baqi Billah. Now, he wanted, he's seeking to develop closeness with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he goes to one khanqa, one spiritual lodge to another until he eventually ends up over the border. I don't know if there was a border, it was Khurasan, maybe at that time, not sure, into Uzbekistan. And Shaykh al Akbar ibn Arabi rahimahullah had just departed before this, and uh, Ghazali rahimahullah had departed before that. And mashallah, there were spiritual lodges everywhere. People were interested in tasawwuf. However, there's also a lot of corruption that had crept into the field of tasawuf as, as it happens to everything if things aren't managed properly over time due, due to exaggerations, misunderstandings of certain Sufi concepts. A level of laxity, in fact, had even crept in to certain Sufi groups. And there, there's also discussion of some who even started treating tasawuf and Sufism as a totally separate religion altogether. And therefore, they thought it was okay to neglect some of the fundamental practices of Islam like Salat and so on, as long as you are a Sufi. Now this, going back to Khaja Baqi Billah, he's moving from Khanqa to Khanqa and suddenly he ends up in the spiritual retreat of this Khaja Amkanagi that I just spoke about in Uzbekistan. He stays with him and he finds fulfillment down there and the, this Khaja uh, Amkanagi gives him the Khilafah, right? He bestows him with the mantle of Khilafah and he authorizes him to teach others tasawuf. While Khaja Baqi Billah is there, he sees a dream in which he sees a parrot. There has to be a dream somewhere in this. Okay, this dreams are, mashallah, very important. He sees a parrot. Now what's significant about a parrot in those days, I don't think anymore, but in those days parrots were seen as a Hindustani and Indian bird. Right, I'm, I've still not worked out why, because I don't think that's where they started, but they were seen as Indian birds. And this dream was interpreted uh, that uh, Khaja Baqi Billah had to go to the subcontinent. And the Shaykh Khaja Baqi uh, Billah, I mean, he was reluctant to go. He was a very low-key low figure, very humble person, probably an introvert. But he was instructed by his Shaykh to go to India. And he was, said, he was told that when you go to India, you will find a man there to whom you will have to pass on your teachings. You'll have to pass on your teachings that man in turn is going to become instrumental in the preservation and the preservation of the religion in India and the defense of it, a major defense of the religion in India and you're going to be the means towards that. So reluctantly he traveled to India and he settles in a masjid in Delhi. I've been to this masjid, I think he's buried uh, behind there. And at that time De Delhi was one of the great cities of the world. I mean, I'm not sure if it still is or not, but at that time it was definitely one of the great cities of Delhi. I'll leave the rest to you to decide about today. And very soon people were drawn towards him. As every sincere friend and lover of Allah, they become like magnets. And many, many people flocked to him and they found benefit in his discourses and his company. And the reason for that is simply a, a hadith tells us, a prophetic narration tells us that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves somebody, he calls Jibreel alayhi salam and he says, I love such and such a person, so you should love him too. And Jibreel alayhi salam then 
pretty much just spreads this information among the other angels and then the, uh, the angels come onto the earth and that message becomes spread subliminally or whatever the, uh, the wavelength it's on through the human beings and people, uh, there's an acceptance an acceptance is placed for them uh, in, in their hearts. Now, let's go back to Sarhind. We've, we're in Delhi now. Allahu Akbar. And we go back to Sarhind. He was uh, Imam uh, Ahmed, uh, Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi. Uh, he was on his way for Hajj. And he'd heard about this Khaja Baqi Billah. And he decided to visit him. Now, Sheikh Ahmed had already studied Tasawwuf under his father. He was a great alim already, proficient scholar of the Sharia, well-grounded in both theology, jurisprudence, and you know, all the various different sciences. Uh, he arrived in, in Delhi, and he went to meet Khaja Baqi Billah, and ends up staying with him for a few months. And then he visits him once or twice more thereafter. On that last visit, Khaja Baqi Billah, I mean, maybe before this, Khaja Baqi Billah realizes that this is the man from India that he has been told to uh, pass his transmission on to. So in his last visit, he says to all of his students that from now on, uh, you're going to take your knowledge from Sheikh uh, Ahmed and uh, eventually Khaja Baqi Billah passes away. Sheikh Ahmed doesn't stay in Delhi. He goes back to Sarhind and he continues his work and he becomes very, very well known. Now, at this time, there's a major problem that has gripped the subcontinent. Now, you have to remember, subcontinent has been very powerful from before. If you look in the Hijaz in Arabia, the subcontinent people have had a major influence there from centuries before in terms of lodges and a number of things. In fact, the Hajj camps of the Indians was probably the closest before. I think now they've kind of shifted them. Uh, but they had a lot of influence there, right? And, and in many other places because they were traders and other things in Malaysia, in lots of other places. Now, it, at this time, it's the third Mughal emperor, the th third Mughal ruler, whose name is uh, um, Akbar, uh, son of Humayun, grandson of uh, Babur. He originally says he started his life as a um, righteous kind of person. He had a lot of respect for ulama at the beginning as well. And it looks like because there was some chaos during his young age, he didn't, not, he didn't learn to read and write, maybe. So that's why he was very impressionable. And there were a number of corrupt people giving him misleading advice, if we want to blame it, blame it on the advisors. Uh, Hindustan has probably always been a majority Hindu country, right? Even though we have 200 million Muslims there right now, it's still a majority Hindu country. And Akbar became obsessed with the idea to unite all the religions in one. And I mean, that's something every Indian will know about, every Indian Muslim will know about. So he enacted a number of uh, laws in this regard. For instance, the of, slaughtering of cows was forbidden at that time. And he called this religion Dine Ilahi or the Akbari religion, Dine Akbari, various names are given. He imposed a number of other strange practices. For instance, anybody who visited him had to do what they call a Sajdatu Ta'zim or Sajdai Ta'zimi. Right, a prostration of reverence. And he even found scholars to justify it, saying that it's not shirk as long as they're not doing it uh, for ibadah and worship purposes. There were, oh look, there were a number of scholars at that time who spoke out against this. But this was going to have major impact because the people of subcontinent, if we look at it in hindsight, I don't know if they would have understood this then or seen how significant this point was going to be. Because right now we have the subcontinent people in a um, multitude of countries. And imagine if this particular religion was allowed to have continued. So what we have to understand is that the Sunnah of Allah is never to neglect the Muslim community. 
The Muslim world has faced many ups and downs, highs and lows, ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys, waxing and waning, fluctuations and good and bad times. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has always revived the Muslims, as has been shown wonderfully by Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Abul Hassan Nadwi in his Saviors of Islamic Spirit, Tariq Dawat Azimat, which I think at this time people should really read, right? It really gives you, a lot of, uh, gives you a lot of inspiration. Eventually, Akbar died after having instituted all of these so-called reforms of his, and then Jahangir became, his son Jahangir became the next ruler of India. He was a much nicer man in the sense, not as ideologically stubborn or driven as his father. He was more interested in probably the luxuries of life, right? I mean, we are talking about people of the past. We learned this from the historians. Now, what, what, what it is, is that if there's a person who's an ideologue against Islam, it's much more difficult to convince them because they have an ideology. Anybody who's not an ideologue, who's just more interested in enjoyment and so on, they still have a heart and you can get to their heart and it's easier to influence such people. Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi eventually has a meeting with Jahangir and uh, uh, some meetings. Uh, what happens is his fame continues to grow and people around Jahangir tell him that you better be warned about this man because he could be your destruction, it could be a a problem for you. So Jahangir uh, reckoned that Imam Sarhindi had, was a threat, so he imprisoned him for about a year. For Sheikh Ahmed, mashallah, person of Allah, he made that his khanqa. The prison became his spiritual lodge and many of the prisoners became religious, religious and recanted their own ways. Jahangir eventually regretted what he had done. He took him out of prison, but then he put him in kind of a house arrest that he had to stay with him. You're like my personal advisor. And he became really, really drawn to him, such that eventually when Imam uh, Sheikh Ahmed passed away, Jahangir even thought that he was his Khalifa. His other Khulafa had to actually say, no, 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 you are very close to him, but you are not his Khalifa. He managed to get uh, Jahangir to reverse a lot of the corrupt laws that his father had enacted. So the, finally the ban on cow slaughter was lifted and many religious prisoners were freed. Now, uh, just to hurry up now, after the death of Sheikh Ahmed, his son Khaja Ma'soom, he took over, he continued his father's work with working with this royal family, with the Mughals. After him, his son Khaja Saifuddin, who died in 1096, he worked uh, on uh, the, the family, because it was very important that this family be kept secure because they were very powerful at the time. And the Mughals were powerful until eventually Aurangzeb after which they started to decline, and then there was a de uh, decline afterwards. The Mughals have left an indelib indelible mark on the subcontinent and I would say beyond through you know, the people who've moved to the other, uh, other, other places. You could probably say that Aurangzeb, who probably became one of the most, arguably maybe one of the greatest of and more powerful, most powerful of their rulers, um, unfortunately, after that, they be, it began to wane. I mean, I, I see a parallel between him and Sheikh Abdul Hamid or Sultan Abdul Hamid of the Ottoman Empire, the last of the great rulers of the Ottomans. And then after that, things just totally descended into, um, you know, t towards basically eventually a destruction of the whole state. Now, uh, Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi uh, is referred to by many names. One is Imam Rabbani then, and the other one more famous is Mujaddid Al-Thani. Reviver of the second millennium. There's many people throughout history who've been noted for being revivers of each, uh, each century, 100 years, as the hadith in Sunan Abu Dawud tells us that there will be such a person. But 
Something unique about Sheikh Ahmed is that he's considered the reviver of the second millennium. Now, there are people who've, argued, uh, who've questioned this title, that is he really a reviver? I mean, uh, a, at least a reviver of the second millennium or not? Now, I would probably say that because the subcontinent has always held a very important position, and more so in the last 100, 200 years, is being influential. People of the subcontinent has be, have been influential in many parts of the Muslim world, Hejaz, the Malay archipelago, and in more recent times, many countries of uh, Africa. I've traveled to at least six or five or six countries of uh, Africa, and mashallah, there's a presence of Indians, Pakistani, Bangladeshis there, primarily Indians. And then pretty much the most of the Western world, America, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, and many parts of Europe, right? And they're doing some solid work. I mean, this is all an effect of this. So the scene would have been very different if the Dine Ilahi had been allowed to prosper and had not been reined in. And we can say it was Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi's work and efforts that managed to put this down. Another area, a few more areas, another area Sheikh Ahmed uh, plays a very pivotal role is removing a lot of the corruptions that had entered and plagued Sufism over time, right? One of them was the concept of Wahdatul Wujud. Now, nothing necessarily wrong with Wahdatul Wujud and I don't want to get into that, but at that time it says that maybe 90% of the Sufis of the world were proponents of Wahdatul Wujud and some in a very extreme way to such a degree that they left praying Salat because Wahdatul Wujud somehow justified for them that uh, being one in with Allah didn't need you to do any other worship and so on. Now, there were many people who wrote against and spoke against the concept uh, that this extreme idea that had come up, but they wouldn't be listened to. They would just be passed off as people of the Zahir, people of the apparent. That's why what you needed is you needed a proficient Sufi master, right, who uh, you know, couldn't be sidelined, who couldn't be dismissed. And that's, that is where Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi comes in. He repudiated this concept, put forward a modified version, uh, which he termed Wahdatu Shuhud, arguing it to be the more sounder one, a less problematic one. Uh, Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi has written a number of works. I can't go into all of that. Many of them are actually epistles and letters, the Maktubat. And subhanAllah, if you go to, for example, Turkey today, and you are, if you're a teacher of the Maktubat in Turkey, right, the whole of uh, Turkey, then you are just like the teacher of Sahih al-Bukhari is revered, right? You get that kind of reverence. It could also be argued that the religiosity in Turkey, right, especially since uh, the 60-year, 70-year secularization program that, initi that was initiated after the 1924, the breaking down of the, the Ottoman Empire, where, you know, where Adhan was banned uh, in, in Arabic and they had to do it in Turkish and so on and so forth. Um, he's had a massive impact there. In fact, Sheikh uh, Badi'u Zaman Saeed Nursi died in 1960. He's had a massive impact. And it could be said that Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Badi'u Zaman Saeed Nursi uh, has a massive influence of Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi. If you go back to the subcontinent, and it's not just there, it's in Iraq. Alusi, uh, uh, Sheikh Khalid Naqshbandi, who came and became a, a student of one of the grand descendants of Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi, and then he went and he spread this Naqshbandiya uh, in Syria. Imam Ibn Abidin, a famous, uh, uh, famous uh, jurisprud uh, jurist, he was of that tariq, Imam Alusi, and a number of others. Now, going back to the subcontinent, Shah Waliullah and his sons, and their whole enterprise may have not been possible had it not been for the 
devotional work and foundations laid down by Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi earlier, right? Then, if it were not for the Shah Waliullah family, then there may have not been a, she uh, a Sheikh, Ahmed, uh, Sheikh Ahmed Shaheed and his movement and his reform movement. And had it not been for Sheikh Ahmed Shaheed, there may have not been a Haji Imdadullah, followed by the likes of Sheikh Qasim Nanotwi, Rashid Ahmed Gangoy, Hakim Ulumma, Manashavri Tanwi, Muhammad Ilyas Khandelwi, and thus they may have not been a Darulum Deuban, nor a Tablighi Jamaat, and many other, many other movements. So the reform movements didn't just start in Deuban in 1867, it started well before that. You can trace it all the way up to Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi and before that. Muhyiddin Chishti and above and above and above, uh, all the way obviously to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So uh, Sheikh Ahmed said Hindi is responsible a number of other things like uh, reviving the Naqshbandi Tariq from 17 lessons to 35 lessons and and so on. Now, just just to finish off in the two minutes, how far has this reached and where has this gone? I I, I say Sheikh Ahmed said would never have had this in his mind of where, in 400 years, his his teaching could have reached. So today, the teachings inspired by Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi and others, obviously, are found in most of the Western world, in Europe, Americas, Africa, Australia, Asia. For example, in Indonesia, a large madrasa there with 12,000 students in a place called Temboro teaches the Naqshbandi Mujaddidi path that was inspired by Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi. Likewise, what a small place in Punjab called Sarhind in India, right? Have you ever heard of Sarhind? Yeah? Okay. Has produced waves of piety, not only around the subcontinent, but also beyond, in places to where its inhabitants migrated and set up seminaries, such as Berry, UK, Buffalo, USA, and also to lands from where individuals came to the subcontinent to drink from its fountains of religious devotion and divine knowledge. So, that's a short excursion. Um, may, may the legacy the the legacy of devotion of the subcontinent continue on uh, as we move on we have many more countries to get to and may it continue alhamdulillah thank you very much a very informative paper and thank you for keeping to time um, i'm going to throw this open to the floor before i do i'll take the prerogative of the uh, the chair um, you you addressed it Partially, um, but I'm wondering if I can press you just a little bit on it, which is in terms of uh, Shah Ahmed Sarhindi's impact and effect far beyond India. So you did mention certain geographical spaces yeah. like Turkey and uh, Iraq, and of course um, where Indians Demasi. migrated elsewhere. Uh, but you also linked this primarily, um, Although not exclusively, because Bedio Zaman Norsi wasn't an Akshbandi of his of his line, uh, he may well have been of another line, but not of that line. Um, you linked mostly his impact to followers of his tariqa. Were there? I'm sorry. Of his tariqa, of the yes, of the Naqshbandi Mujaddidi tariqa line, which of course goes through him. Were there any other impacts? on the Islamic sciences more generally in terms of how they were taught or practiced or so on elsewhere that existed outside of inheritors or of murids of his tariqa? No, I don't think we can exclusively relate everything back to him. He just plays a major part in removing the, dismantling the deen ilahi 
and, and then after that, setting up the reform work of purifying the corruptions in Tasawwuf coming from a Sufi. So I think what he does is he lays down a foundation. That obviously gives, mashallah, see, because I think for 200 centuries from Sheikh Mu'inuddin Chishti, rahimahullah's time, for 200 centuries, you had the ascendancy of the Chishtis throughout the subcontinent. And after, I think it was after uh, the fourth, the fifth one, um, I forget his name. Uh, after that, it was uh, the ascendancy of the Naqshbandis, and that lasted for about three to four centuries. And then after that, with Haji Imdadullah, it looks like he was initially, uh, he was initially with a Naqshbandi Sheikh who passed away, and then after that, he moved to a Chishti Sheikh, and thereafter that the Chishtiya was enlivened again. And right now, we're seeing, you know, that's what we're seeing. So no, there's been, there, there's been it's not exclusively him, for sure. Okay, um, if you could raise your hand and I will come to you in order. So we'll go here and then there, inshallah, and then there, okay. Bismillah. Yeah, thank you very much for an excellent talk. I'm saying talk because I couldn't get your papers, so I couldn't read it. Yeah, I didn't have it. Anyway, uh, it's an excellent paper and uh, there are two ways to read this paper. One is the way you are describing. Uh, the personality and the historical context in which uh, MSR Hindi lived and worked. The other way is that what is the takeaway of this and shall we put it in a different perspective to draw different meanings of this paper. And I'm interested in the later part of it uh, because you are in a way very interestingly pointing towards a contest between the religious discourses as well as political power. And this is very significant because whenever we think of idea of heritage in subcontinent and especially in post-colonial India, it is very important to, for us as Indian Muslims that what could be the important component of the medieval times which should be commemorated in a positive way. And your talk, the ways in which you are linking Ahmed Sarhindi, Vishwaha Waliullah, and later, uh, for instance, Maulana Hussain and Ahmed Madani, mm. I think that it provides a different idea of heritage in which we can assert that a dividing line was always drawn between political power and the religious assertion. Mm -hmm. So the devotional assertion was in a way to use a very complicated term secular was always there that you can accommodate different people without giving up your essential Islamicness in a way that you would always remain Islamic, but at the same time, you would open up, and at the same time, you would also assert yourself against the established political power. So if that is the case, then there is a strong possibility to think of this idea of heritage, which makes us more Islamic, more open, in comparison to Muslim rule. So if you look at the uh, blame game that is played out in contemporary India, that Muslims are treated as if whatsoever done by the Muslim rulers in medieval India, the contemporary Muslim communities are responsible for that. If I take from you this important reformulation of the idea of heritage, then we can certainly find an answer. No, we are not responsible what Akbar did or what Aurangzeb did. We can certainly say that we, being an Islamic, uh, being a Muslim as well as practicing Islamic communities, we have a different notion of heritage, and this notion of heritage is still surviving. So I think that's the most important takeaway, okay. at least for me. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I, uh, I, again, because I'm not so 
uh, aware of the exact dynamics in India right now, but that, that's a really interesting point that it's always been, our devotion has always been the most important because that's the powerhouse, that's the heart. That's what keeps our faith. Siyasa and politics is something that is, has to be adjusted and adapted to what the need is of that time. And despite being you know, on this path of devotion, it doesn't stop you, as Sheikh Hussein Ahmed Madni's legacy shows us, of being part of the politics. So Alhamdulillah, Jazakallah Khair for that. Please, go ahead. Uh, my, uh, my question is more uh, in the form of a clarification. This is certainly not my domain of knowledge, so, so there are too many names. Don't and, worry, it's uh, not mine as well, so it's okay. yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so, so uh, what I understand out of this is this. So there is this gentleman who has been able to revive a tradition, right, and which has now global influence, right? So that's the basic argument. Now the question is this, that, uh, that he's also the guy who brainwashed, my, uh, uh, brainwashed Jahangir, Akbar's son, about the Nilai. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with brainwashed, but... Yeah. Uh, but uh, um, you know, the, yeah. if I ask this question, uh, what uh, led to the end of the Nilai, what, for sorry? instance? What caused the end of the Nilai, the entire project? Because Akbar basically wanted to be a prophet, right? Uh, uh, how did the how did it end? It's basically it's his son who who basically disregarded everything that his father had done. Mm -hmm. uh, someone must have convinced him, or on his own he has convinced. Jahangir, that, yeah, okay. so mm -hmm. Jahangir, yeah. So so obviously revival comes in the context of there was some decline that had happened, and there is somebody who's trying to revive a tradition about it. So now the question is this: that uh, uh, and which I think, in my understanding, it's probably a weak link. And I'm interested uh, if you could shed some light on that, which is if I suggest that the global success of whatever evidence that we see outside the continent is less about the merit of this particular tradition, more about the entrepreneurial ability of his followers. Will that be a good argument? The interpretive ability, you said. Entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial. In yes, that, to a certain degree, that's Dan, definitely the case. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as a vehicle for this. I think my, my point was that, I mean, it's not because of his teachings that people spread around the world. That's just an Indian thing. You know, that's just Indian entrepreneurs, you know, going around the world. But had it not been for his work, we could have said there would have been a different scene wherever they did go. They probably would have still gone, but it may have been a totally different scene. Okay, we still have time for several more questions, so I have one here, and then here, any others to be put down? No? Okay, bismillah. Uh, mashallah, excellent talk. Uh, uh, one of the uh, underlying aspects, or rather the methodology adopted by this great sheikh, was a long-term strategy, or rather the, the way he, adopt the, he envisioned the change that has to be made in that particular society. It wasn't as if just to pass a fatwa, okay, this is not done. He was someone who visioned something like which, like which bear fruit three generations down the line, four generations down the line. So I have a rather uh, concern, or masquerading as a question perhaps, that in the present times, the present uh, ulema, the scholarship that we have, uh, more particularly in the institutional uh, set of setup, what kind, are we really following such kind of things or drawing inspiration from such mm. 
uh, long-term vision kind of thing like, okay, fine, yeah. this, this is not happening according to Islam. So that's one part. And the second question, which may, is linked or direct, indirectly, is that uh, each generation or each century or perhaps centuries have a language which is there. For instance, Persian was once the language of the elites. Arguably, English is the language of the elites in the past few centuries or perhaps for the next few. And maybe Chinese uh, next, yes. Okay. So, sorry? Maybe Chinese next. Ha, we, we, yeah. You never know. But at present, in general, yeah. in India or increasingly across the world, anyone who has been considered to be educated is well versed in English. So, the present elite, so-called elites, people who are in the government or the know-how or the, in, the, mm -hmm. in the policy making, or people who are really yeah. thinkers, mm -hmm. they are actually cut off with such kind of scholarship and work. I appreciate so, that. Yeah. So, what do you suggest or what are the steps that mm. you suggest, I mean, I'm just concerned okay. that we can do for that? So, firstly, um, I doubt that Sheikh Ahmad Sir Hindi was, uh, Wallahu alam, I doubt he was ever, ever told that what's your five-year plan, your 10-year plan and your 20-year plan. I would doubt that he would have it may have been, I think what he probably saw was the corruption and this is, the, this is those people Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to take, you know, uh, except for his service like that. They, they have that natural vision, right, that this is corrupt, this is going in the wrong direction. If, we, if I don't see this as my responsibility, then I'm in trouble. You have to see it as your responsibility, you have to have the capability, the proficiency and a number of other things. And that all came together in Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi, I think. So that, that's what I would think, and I don't think we disagree there anyway. In terms of the vision, I think what you're talking about is Lughatul Qawm, right? Lughatul Qawm, that is extremely important, is that we are able to converse in the dominant Qawm, the dominant people who are setting the trends. So as you highlighted, English probably is the, is the language, is the lingua franca of the Qawm as such. And for that to happen, in England, alhamdulillah, I mean, we're in the West, we're native speakers, so all the ulama that graduate there, they speak English, but unfortunately they could do much better, and there's always an emphasis that heighten your language. Because in Urdu, there's, I mean, there is a slang, but most people who are educated, they speak a decent form of eloquent Urdu, right? Uh, whereas in English, we have a problem, uh, even in English-speaking countries, that a lot of our ulama may just be speaking a slang, or colloquial at least, form of uh, language. So our constant, like in our madrasa, this is what we're constantly pushing them to do, that you need to learn the lughatul qawm. When somebody listens to you, they can't tell the difference. They, 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 they are amazed by what you say because language is a carrier and it's a vehicle and that's very important. So we need a lot more. But in India, I've seen this, that uh, when I go to Bangalore, for example, out of the four million Muslims there, one million speak English. I've even gone there and told them off, but I think I'm wasting my time. When I've gone to Pakistan, I insist on speaking Urdu, but they say, I know speak English, otherwise nobody's going to listen to you. So there's a massive problem in, in, in India, subcontinent and Pakistan, that if the ulama don't start conversing in Urdu, then we're going to lose people. We're already losing people. So I'm like yeah. concerned, the like, translations and all, like... Sorry? I'm concerned, or rather, such great works they are just for people who know good Urdu, in fact. Yeah. They're not open for us, like the common people who don't, uh, don't know. No, in Urdu. that front, alhamdulillah, a number of books are being translated into English. Where's Yahya? Yahya Bai is there. 
White Thread and, Yahya and uh, Torah Publishing, we've published Shana. a number of uh, translated books in good quality language that anybody will pick up Mashallah. and inshallah be able to. And now uh, for the Indian market, because the Indian market, you know, you can't pay 10 pounds for a book. Right, that's a thousand rupees. Yeah. Uh, no, no, it's yeah. I, I think uh, so now we've actually ha uh, having select books published in India in English through sure. Ilm Store. I'll just plug it right now, ilmstore.in is it India.in, and they're actually publishing there. You have some good printing presses, so inshallah that will become more. But we need to do a lot more work. Mashallah, you just yeah. need to market that well. Yeah. It's very much needed. General perception across the board is that. Whatever is it, Islamic or such works are something of 1,400 years old. And unless that is given in the language that we understand, the, the, the modern language, it's a challenge. MashaAllah, very good. Okay, this will be our final question, um, which I'll have to ask you to make it brief as we need to move on to the, the closing session. Uh, no question, but I just want to suggest two, three things. Deen Alai was not a very challengeable religion started by Akbar. It died its natural death within Akbar's time. Hardly a few numbers of the people were to please the emperor, accepted it. And it is very interesting to note that once Akbar told Raja Man Singh, a Hindu, to be, adopt this Deen Alai, he said, Shanja, I know only Hinduism and Islam. If you say I become a Muslim, but I don't know the Deen Alai. So, but, but there were some evils in the society for that. Sheikh Ahmad Saranjit took the task. His relation with the Tishtis, his father was a Tishti, mm. and two important things from his life have been recorded. And uh, I think that you must have gone to Friedman Yonna's book on Sheikh Ahmad Saranjit. No, Friedman Yonna's book. Very interesting and very in detail. What's his name? Fried Yonna. Yonna, Fried Friedman. I will give the name. Okay, I'll take it from you. Sheikh Ahmed Sarindi, when he visited the Admir Shrine, he was offered a chadar cloth sheet from the shrine's people. And he took it with all respect, in spite of all his purity and thought and, you see, beliefs, and told the people that this, was, this will be my, this will be beneficial for me in the other world. So please bury it with me. Well, it could not be possible at the time of death. So you must also highlight some relation of Sheikh Ahmad And more importantly, he appointed his son on Kayumiyat at Ajmer. As what? Kayumiyat, Kayumiyat, the concept of Kayumiyat. Okay. I think you now touched it. Kayumiyat, the concept of Kayumiyat in that Nakshmandi is. Kayum, Kayumiyat. That point you have missed. You must see to it. So instead of Khilafat, instead of the succession, they are known as Kayumiyat, and he appointed his son at Ajmer to get the blessings of Sarkh Madin Chishti. There are some suggestions that you can take. Jazakallah khair for that. The point of a lecture is to encourage people to act, to get further, an inspiration, an encouragement, persuasion. The next step is to actually start learning seriously to read books, to take on a subject of Islam and to understand all the subjects of Islam, at least at their basic level, so that we can become more aware of what our deen wants from us. Uh, and that's why we started uh, Rayyan courses, so that uh, you can actually take organized lectures uh, on demand whenever you have free time, especially, for example, the Islamic Essentials 
uh, course that we have on there, the Islamic Essential Certificate, which you take 20 short modules. And at the end of that, inshallah, you will have gotten the, the basics of uh, most of the most important topics in Islam, and you'll feel a lot more confident. You don't have to leave lectures behind. You can continue to, leave, uh, you know, to listen to lectures, but you need to have this more sustained study as well. Jazakallah khair and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.